I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Allie Michael, PhD. Her new book is Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People. Building a healthy, multiracial society is possible, but not without millions of white people seeing racism as our problem and choosing to walk an anti-racist path. It will take us supporting and challenging one another on this journey to learn more about the realities of racism and what we can do about it. Award-winning author, Allie Michael, and clinical psychologist, Eleonora Bartoli, invite white people to join them on an anti-racist journey to learn to talk about race with one another in ways that lead to real change. They share the important realities versus the myths of racism, as well as the action needed to be taken so that we can do our part in dismantling racism. Allie is the co-director of the Race Institute for K-12 through Educators and the winner of the 2017 Society of Professors of Education Outstanding Book Award. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today, Allie. Thanks so much, Catherine. It's really great to be here with you. Well, I'm going to make the uh, assumption that the premise of the book is that the problem, and we're talking about systemic racism right now in your book, can only be addressed when white people understand themselves and that this is their problem, too. It's all of our problems. Yes. I, I think that's accurate. But there are a couple of things that we're trying to say when we say racism is a white person problem. So one of the things were, that I didn't realize when I was growing up um, is that racism really, we can only do something about racism when white people get involved. I grew up in a very colorblind community, a colorblind family where that where I think my parents really, in a good intentioned way, believe that in order to uh, raise good children, you have to teach them not to see race or to pretend not to see race, not to talk about it. And well, I grew up really believing that racism was somebody else's problem. It was you know something people of color had to deal with that was sad, but there's not much I could do about it if I am not overtly racist. And I was raised not to be overtly racist. So it was like, it, you know, I was kind of outside of the racial puzzle. And then I well, heard this you... quote from James Baldwin. He said, you know, racism is actually not a person of color problem. It's a white person problem. And it's not going to change until white people do something about it. And I felt really called in by this. Uh, but also like, well, what am I supposed to do about it? I can't even talk about it. <laughs> you know, I struggle. I struggle even with the basic uh, vocabulary around racism. How am I supposed to end it or do something about it? So that's one piece of it. But then the other idea is that racism, racism hurts white people, too. So it's also our problem, not just because we need to do something about it, but because it actually actively hurts white people, not in the same way as it hurts people of color and Native people. Um, but it really um, undermines so many of the things that um, we're trying to do in this society, including having a strong democracy. You know, you mentioned right when you started uh, talking about your experience growing up and colorblindness, because I know that's a big issue, talking about being colorblind. And uh, colorblind, then you're really blind. I mean, (laughs) there's black and white, Mm. and we're all different colors. And if you can't see it, then you can't, I think, then you can't... uh, uh, you can't deal, you can't recognize the issues or the problems or, you know, the, how it impacts all of us. Um, and I, so colorblindness really is not a good 
term or it's not something that we should be proud of or this is something that we have to work on because it's it's there and we have to recognize it. Um, but I think that whole issue of being afraid of talking about uh, the, our differences, about talking about uh, is 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 that's really the key. I mean, we really have to get over that if we're going to be able to deal with systemic racism. I mean, that, that I think that's mm-hmm. the issue. Um, yeah, I totally agree. And I, I think it's important to realize that some of the training we have for colorblindness, it starts really early. And so, it, you know, when I first started to try to have conversations about race and racism, even though I understood really quickly, if I'm colorblind, if I can't talk about race, then I can't talk about or do anything about racism. I had to unlearn so much of my training that was really built into my physiology. So at that point, 18, 19 years old, I, um, when I came time to talk, say something like white or black or some words that, that are color conscious words related to race, I would get all tongue tied and I'd stutter and I'd, I'd finish sentences right in the middle because I think, well, I can't say that. I mean, that's rude. I don't know if I can use that word. And I would find, and I would be deeply embarrassed. And then I think, well, I shouldn't do that again because I'm, I'm clearly not good at this. Um, and I don't know how to do it without offending. And I think that that happens to a lot of people. And so one of the things we're trying to demonstrate in this book is that our capacity to do anything about racism is deeply tied to our bodies. And um, we often go into fight, flight, freeze mode uh, when just by trying to talk about race and racism or to do something that we were taught not to do as children. And so we need to be able to work with um, unlearning some of those, those things, not just in a knowledge-based way, but in terms of a, a, an embodied and practiced way so that we're going to be able to be more effective in, in um, both recognizing and intervening with racism. Well, I, I guess in the introduction I mentioned, I mean, you work with, you know, K through 12. So how do you do that with children? Because, I mean, obviously, I think that's really important. And uh, where do we start? I mean, it, it, as you said, it, when you grew up, colorblindness, not talking about race, not talking about differences and feeling uncomfortable when you did was not really the best thing to do. So what do we do? How do we start with our kids? Well, there's actually two chapters in the book on talking to kids about race. And the the main piece is just is really not being colorblind, being open to the conversation, not shaming kids for the questions that they have, and being willing to be with them as as you explore those questions. Many racial socialization scholars say that what really the way we socialize our kids around race is what we do consistently, persistently, and in an enduring manner. So when we're talking regularly when we're open to conversation, when we're analyzing media with our kids as we watch it, uh, then we're um, then we're kind of engaged in a color-conscious parenting or teaching. When we shame kids for asking questions about difference or, you know, noticing uh, racial background, um, then we are really raising our kids to be colorblind, or if we just never talk about it. Um, and so then I, I recommend that people start with three different um, aspects, three different main points, because I, I worked with a, a mom once who said, you know, when my uncle died and I had to explain it to my child, 
I, I didn't really know how to talk to a child about death, but I had some instinct about comforting him and answering his questions and just like sitting with him in this and telling him what I believed. But when it comes to race, I have no instinct. I have, I have zero information. I don't, I don't know what is right. Everything feels wrong. And I said, okay, I think, I think there's three main things that kids need to know that are pretty foundational that they can learn over the course of their childhood. The first is that we all have melanin, which leads to our skin color. And, you, you know, some people have more melanin and some people have less. You have more melanin if your ancestors, your biological ancestors, came from a place where they needed more protection from the sun. Um, and if you needed to let more vitamin D into your skin, then, then you, it, because of living in a colder place, then um, you have less melanin. It, melanin doesn't make us better or worse, or, and there's no, there's no value. It's just kind of, you know, it can tell a story about who you are and where you're from. Race is the value that our society has put on melanin. And so for the last 500 years, our society has really built a racial hierarchy where they, where, where in general, people who had less melanin, people who were deemed to be white, um, had more access to resource and opportunity through the law. And, and then people who had lots of melanin, whose ancestors were from Africa, um, were actually uh, not only denied resource and opportunity, but were actually enslaved and deemed to be property. And, and, and that was meaning that people put on, on skin color that, had, that is not inherent to the skin color. The skin color is just, you know, it, I mean, it's like eye color. It doesn't, doesn't really have meaning on its own. Race is what gave it meaning. And, and the way that race gave it meaning was through the systems that ranked us. And so systems like banking and housing and the law and education. Um, and, and so when I talk to my kids, I mean, my kids are only 12 and nine, um, but we do, a, we talk a lot about melanin and we talk about how race was created based on melanin. And then we try to over time help them understand the way systems have been set up to treat people unfairly based on race. And, and then to say, you know, it's really important that for, for us, especially as white people, that we confront those systems when we see ways in which people are not being treated equally or fairly. So racism is a social construct. That's all it is. Uh, not all it is. That's what it is. It is a social <laughs> construct. Yes. I mean, I'm as you're talking about your kids, I'm thinking about I have three grandchildren, six uh, twins who are four and, and a six-year-old, and he's always asking me, uh, those kinds of questions. And my daughter-in-law is uh, Korean. So he asks me, why are her eyes different? And I started to get into yeah. I said, well, I think it's an evolutionary thing. And then he ran away. This was a couple of weeks ago. So <laughs> I'm trying to explain it evolution to a six-year-old. But anyway, so I got to have to get back to it. But actually, they're not really, I mean, in that case, it's a very, uh, you know, adaptation, adapting. And, and I don't think um, they, the scientists, are really quite sure about this anyway, that, that uh, the shape of your eyes adapted to, you know, you don't want to get too much ultraviolet light on your eyes because if you live in places where it's very sunny or another, I guess, uh, the uh, hypothesis that it has to do with the cold, uh, you know, the shape of your eyes protects uh, the retina, and, and, but there's no really definitive answer. But anyway, so evolution is the answer I gave him. But <laughs> um, so I think it's great, and and I mean the truth is, what he's looking for before he runs away yeah. is, uh, does this question scare you? 
are you willing to engage the question with me? Um, is it okay to ask this question? And my kids do the same thing. They ask a deep question. I give them one sentence answer and they're gone. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, because they can only take in so much at, at a time. But, but part of what you conveyed to him is, that's a, that's a good question. That's a worthy question. Let's think about that. And if you want to talk about it more, I, you know, I'd love to talk about it more. Yeah. And I think next time we can look it up together. And right. uh, yeah, do I, I always I, I try to do that. And uh, this is just another uh, antidote. But this has to do more with the LBGTQ. And he's uh, who um, many of our friends are. And so he's exposed to a lot of gay couples. And he's he's funny because he was t- telling stories, making up stories and stuff. And he goes, well, George and his husband have five children. And I thought, you know what? We've done a good thing. He gets it, right? He, and then he goes on to tell mm-hmm. about Sally and Sue and, you know, whoever, whatever the stories were. But anyway, uh, it's just part of, um, that's part of his world. And I think that's a good thing. That's it's similar. But yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny because I think that people who grow up without that being part of their world think, well, how could you possibly talk about that with a child? And it's, and, and often people will say that about race. They'll say, well, my five-year-old or my six-year-old is colorblind because they're born colorblind. But in fact, we know that kids, even from a young age, are often expressing gender preferences and certainly knowledge about, about different, you know, different gender associations around um, different, you know, colors and, and activities. And so they don't always choose the one that aligns with their assigned gender, but they, they're um, aware of the gender rules from a very young age. And, um, and I think the same is true with race. And so if kids at five or six years old say they're colorblind, it's not because they were born that way. It's because they're really smart and they, and they realize this is what the adults around me want me to say. Children are curious. And, and I think this is Mm. what you talk about in your book and, and that curiosity, how you respond to that without shame and guilt and hesitation and being afraid uh, makes a huge difference. And, 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 they're they're just asking questions, and and I and they're they're uh, they're curious. So it, the information they get, it's important. That the emotional context in which they get the information is critical, and that's yeah yeah our responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, one thing that I think is um, that we often forget is that our kids are actually learning racial messages all day long. So I learned racial messages throughout my childhood. I grew up in an almost all-white space. It was a suburban community. Uh, it was 99.8% white. And we were 10 miles away from an almost all-black community. And this is not an uncommon experience. We live in such a racially segregated country that we often, um, that many white people grew up in, in predominantly white spaces, not far from predominantly black spaces. And I got a lot of messages about how dangerous black communities are, how I shouldn't drive through them, that, um, uh, you know, that these, these messages kind of fed my biases about black communities and about black people. And so as I grew up, I actually had a lot of racial messages, a lot of negative messages about black people and black communities, and a lot of positive messages about the safety and comfort I would feel if I stayed in all white spaces. And so nobody ever like explicitly gave me that message, but I got that message over time. 
And so when we say to talk to kids about race, it's partly because they're actually constantly absorbing messages from our society and talking through um, anti-racist ideas with them can help them uh, can help them confront those messages. So it's not like if we're colorblind, our kids don't get any messages. That's they, they, they're actually, it just means that somebody else is socializing your child around race. Maybe you can respond to this. I, I, there was some a study done that I actually quite uh, many years ago that I had read that, um, you know, if you take, uh, people are, in, are, are afraid of, you mentioned you live right next to a black community and you, you know, you were afraid and you weren't supposed to go there and it was dangerous and all of those kinds of things that people are actually individuals are really afraid of, of poverty. That's what's frightening. And if you, and they did some kind of experience experiments, like bringing kids or, or young people down into communities where they may be predominantly white, but very, very poor. And that, that was, that, that was terror. That was, they were afraid of that. Um, and that that also comes into play, um, that poverty is frightening. Um, it's not necessarily just because it's a black or a white community. Yeah, I am sure that that's the case. I think that sometimes our fears can be very class-based. Um, I, I know certainly there are messages that kids get about, you know, um, don't talk a certain way, you'll, you'll sound like, uh, you know, as the often middle class kids will get um, lectured about how to how to talk in a way that sounds middle class rather than um, the more like colloquial local accent that maybe more working class folks have from that town. So there's definitely classism um, in the in it, tied up in this as well. But it looks different when it's when um, the people who are live. Uh, impoverished communities in your city are also predominantly black because then those things get um, tied together. And then, and then what kids learn or what people learn is um, I mean, because I grownups have these same misperceptions that black communities are dangerous, that you shouldn't send your kids to school in predominantly black communities. If you're white, you shouldn't, um, you know, that, that basically black spaces are inferior and in fact, uh, what we know is that there's um, there there's actually um, not necessarily it's like if you drive through a black community, um, there's people going to school, people sitting on their front stoops, people you know talking to their neighbor. There's like all kinds of things happening there that um, we don't often see in the media or that we don't consider black spaces are segregated because of our history, um, not because there's something inherently wrong with black people or black spaces. Well, so how do superstars fit into this? Black superstars, Serena Williams and all the, the super, uh, you know, whether it's celebrity actors, actresses, you know, the um, uh, President Obama, how, you know, how does that fit into the picture when you're, let's say, with children in, in terms of how they view black people? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, you know, certainly my kids today have many, many more role models who are black than, um, that, that are just more visible to them than, than I had when I was growing up. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we also have more visible, uh, superstars talking about their experiences of racism. One of the things that we're trying to do with this book 
is make it possible for white people to really hear the experiences that people of color and Native people have with racism um, and not be afraid by it, not be scared off by it. Because one thing that happens is that um, I think in general, the way we have conversations about anti-racism in our society can feel very threatening. It's almost like the bar to entry is very high. And if you don't know all the right words or you don't know... um, you, uh, you know, the, all the history, you might start to, uh, feel like you don't belong in the conversation or you might, I I hear all the time from people who say like, I don't want to say the wrong thing, or I said the wrong thing once. And now I feel like, you know, I'm persona non grata. I don't, I don't want to be a part of this conversation. And I think one of the things we have to realize is that for white people, we often don't develop racial competence at a young age or really at any age, because it's not required of us. It's not required of us usually professionally. I'm sure for you in social work, for educators, sometimes there's a, like a, a, a small requirement um, or sometimes there's a big requirement. But for most professionals, for white professionals, it's not required. For most people of color and Native people, it's a requirement because it's how you survive in our society. So a lot of people of color already know a lot about racism, have a, a strong racial competence um, because they've had to develop it in order to be successful or to survive in our society. But one of the things that's then required of them is not to, not to talk about racism and how it's impacted them. And so one of the things we're trying to do is say, first of all, white people need to be able to start where they are. And so even if you're only at step three and you don't want to be part of the conversation because the conversation requires that you be at step 20 or 30, you know, <laughs> and you're just still at the very beginning of your path, you need to be at, we need to find ways for those folks to be able to enter the conversation without being intimidated by it. And our answer to that is other white people can support white people who are early on their journey. And then because of the support, that white people give to one another, they will be able to listen to what's happening for people of color and Native people, um, hear experiences of racism without shutting down, without, without kind of denying it or, or, or being afraid of it. Um, but this is why we're promoting a collective anti-racism because too often white people, I think, are often are, are like very competitive with one another. I have to show that I'm anti-racist. And so that means if there's a white person who doesn't know everything about racism, I'm going to undermine them or I'm going to you know, shame them or call them out if they make a mistake. And so we're not saying that white people shouldn't hold one another accountable, just that we should do it in a loving and inviting and supportive way so that white people... Um, can actually rise to the rise to the occasion of of working against racism in a collective manner. And when you talk about, I think twenty percent of the people are white supremacists. If I'm using, and I, I I might be using the wrong word, but way far to the right, twenty percent of the people are way mm. far, you know, very are accepting. And then there's that whole sixty percent or what in the middle that we need to be talking to and with and. Uh, because we have to be able to feel comfortable and that that's where the change comes or that's where the big change comes, I guess. Right. If you're, um, but we have to feel comfortable ourselves. And I, and I've had lots of experiences like this. I used to have a, a, there was a couple of friend of mine that one was black, one was white, two guys. And uh, it was always a standing joke because 
the uh, friend who was black, he would always say, you know, but they think black people, you know, ne- never we go to the beach, never can get tan or never can get burned. <laughs> and he said, and that's not mm. true. Uh, you know, all those little kinds of things, you know, that uh, people don't want to talk about. Uh, but I mean, that's just, you know, just an anecdotal example. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good example because it's such an innocuous thing. I, yeah. There was a teacher at a school I visited last week who was cleaning out her classroom, and she said to her black colleague, do you think I should keep this umbrella? This does not seem necessary. And and the, the colleague said, yeah, you should, because if you have black students um, who are, you know, switching classes on days when it's raining, they might really appreciate having an umbrella. And And the white teacher thought, well, I... I'd never thought of that, you know, and it's like these little things that are related to the fact that our hair is different, you yeah. know, white and black people have different hair. There's no shame in that. There's, it's like power. It's cool. Our, our, we have this amazing difference of we we're able to do different things with our hair and black people need more protection from the rain <laughs> when they you know, for their hair. And so that's not something that we should be embarrassed about, but it was just another example of, a white person growing up white in a predominantly white community, not really having any experience about what their black students might need in the rain or like on the day when swim tests are required, for example. And so these are little tiny competencies that actually can make a huge difference um, when, when we're able to talk about the fact that we're different and that difference is good. Yeah. Different. Right. The differences yeah. are good. Uh if we're all the same, it's quite boring, actually. Right. Uh, but, uh, well, and also I'm thinking, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I'm thinking about, like, the cosmetic industry has really grasped, you know, black women need different kinds of mm-hmm. uh, uh, lipstick and, you know, facial creams and stuff than if you have white, white skin. And they really go through the whole variety, white to very dark black, and, uh, you know, promote those kinds of um products, which is a good thing. So, um, you know, uh, your book is great anyway. So we have a a couple minutes left. Tell us where we can, uh, purchase your book. I'm books, you know, bookstores everywhere online and, uh, also more information about you, where we can go. Absolutely. So the, the book is called our problem, our path. It's available on bookshop.org, corwin.com, or of course, Amazon. Um, my website is allymichael.org. And Allie Michael is a supermodel. So if you Google Allie Michael and you get a supermodel, put in Allie Michael race. <laughs> because, okay. because, You're not uh, the supermodel? That's not my website. Okay. Okay. No, I, that is not me. So I'm AllieMichael.org. And then my, my co-author is EleonoraBartoli.com. And you can find her, uh, the links to the book at both of our websites. Great. Allie Michael, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Catherine. Great to talk with you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 